Kia ora, welcome everyone back to episode 3 of Aotearoa Unearthed, a podcast for everyone who's interested in learning about New Zealand's past through archaeology. I'm Rosemary Beard, your host, an archaeology novice who asks the dumb questions. I was really excited to do this episode as I got to interview two archaeologists at once, Hallie and Peter, who are the co-leaders of the Southern Cemeteries Archaeology Project. This project is a series of archaeological excavations in Otago and Southland cemeteries. And through their analysis of artefacts and skeletal remains, the team are discovering more about early European and Chinese settlers and gold miners in the region. The project is funded by the University of Otago and the Marsden Fund. And today we're going to learn a bit about the lengthy process of community consultation that goes into setting up a complex project like this one. This episode deals with the Otago Gold Rush, Chinese sojourners, lost burials, snowstorms, DNA and bone analysis, so it's going to be super fun. <laughs> Sorry, I'm such a history geek. Anyway, it's a bit of a longer episode today, but totally worth it. Today we're lucky to have two guests with us, Hallie Buckley and Peter Petchy, who are the co-directors of the Southern Cemetery Project, and they're both based in Dunedin. Professor Hallie Buckley is a bioarchaeologist, and Peter's an expert in the archaeology of early machines, tools and technology used in New Zealand's goldfields. So I wondered if you could both just tell me what each of you do for this project. Hallie, do you want to go first? Sure. We've both got complementary skills of um, running this, this type of project. So basically what bioarchaeology means is that it's the excavation and analysis of human skeletal remains. And my expertise lies in looking at the remains of the person to try and sort of build a story of their lives about their health and illness and stuff. So in terms of the project, I work on the the excavation of the human skeletal remains themselves and then the lifting of the material and then the analysis of the actual people in the lab and also work with a number of very talented specialists who then go off and do their work on chemical isotopes and molecular studies and stuff. And what about you Peter? Um, well I'm, I'm a field archaeologist sort of first and foremost so my role I suppose is running the overall excavation so dealing with the machinery, dealing with the big holes on site, doing the mapping and recording so that everything we found is recorded in three dimensions so we can um, draw a plan of, the, of what we find and these graves and these people in terms of the landscape that they would have lived and worked in. Well, there's so much I want to follow up with both of you, but I thought we could also just talk at the start about how you get approval for a project like this, because I imagine it's quite controversial digging up cemeteries, possibly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it certainly can be. Basically, what our project is all about is working with um, communities who have questions about their cemeteries. So a lot of these the cemeteries in the Otago region over the years the grave markers have been lost and so there are a number of groups out there who want to know really where the, the graves are. For most of what we've done we've actually been approached by community groups to ask us to help them. Controversial maybe, that's one way of describing it, but it's certainly sensitive. So really what we need to do is we need to make sure that everybody who is affected by this is aware of what it is that we're wanting to do and actually how we do it um, and then everybody's informed and can make informed decisions about whether they want it to go ahead or not. So it's hundreds of hours of public consultation before we even get to the stage of applying for the official 
permits mm. to do it. So Peter's in charge of the archaeological authority you, and then usually I'm in charge of the disinterment license with the Ministry of Health. And I know when I talked to you earlier I was struck by how respectful you were about the individual's remains. You don't just see them as bones. We are scientists but um, we're very interested in the stories that those people can tell and um, and we do see them as people. They are people who, who lived in this landscape and in this environment and they were buried by their loved ones and the whole overall aim of the project is to actually give them their voices back. They go back to their graves and they're acknowledged with sometimes will be their name because we can positively identify some people um, and in other cases it'll be you know this was a man of a certain age and so forth but their graves will be marked. And so for you Peter when you finally got the archaeological authority could you just describe what the process is of going to the cemetery and doing the excavation? In some ways it's actually remarkably simple um, in other ways not so much. We get a big digger and a very good operator um, with a, what's known as a cleaning bucket, which is a, a big digger bucket with a smooth lip. And we very carefully take about three inches of topsoil off, scrape, scrape an area back, and we look for grave cuts. And they're the sort of rectangular cuts in the ground where people have dug a hole in the past. What we've found is where the graves are isn't necessarily either where the fence of the cemetery is or even where the legal cemetery is. So we, we look outside what people you know, think of as the cemetery today, then we start to, you know, actually excavate the, the graves themselves. When it comes to the excavations, what are the special skills that your archaeologists need to have? Obviously for, for Hallie's, um, the bioarchaeologists a very good understanding human anatomy. Uh, you want to know what, what goes where, so that when you're digging you know when to be careful. Really just good, skilled excavators, uh, people who have experience in archaeology and can do the delicate work um, of just sitting down, carefully digging away at something for days on end with tiny tools sometimes. <laughs> Patience is a, is a virtue. Do you want to tell me about <laughs> one of the cemeteries that you have excavated? Lawrence, possibly? Yeah, sure, yeah. It's a good story. Yeah, it is a good story. <laughs> One of the cemeteries in Lawrence, we actually had to go back three times because the first time we went, there was supposed to only be one grave at this cemetery. It was the original cemetery of Lawrence and only in use for a few years. And then the story was that everyone had actually been exhumed from there and then reburied in the new cemetery on Gabriel Street. But what we found was that that just wasn't the case. By lunchtime on the first day, we had already identified, I think, six or seven grave cuts. So how did that feel? It's always pretty exciting. In some ways it was very surprising, in some ways it was not surprising, because we'd already learnt that at Milton, that where people think the graves are isn't always the case. We'd found 16 graves outside of the fence. In Milton? In Milton, yeah. And so then, yeah, getting back to Lawrence, also invariably seemed to experience extremes in weather, wherever we are. So we got quite slowed up by winter arriving overnight. And also we had to finish this at the early cemetery in Lawrence because it's on private land. So we went back there and then found that there was in total 24 
graves. Mm. So how does that happen that you think all the people have been moved but they mm. haven't? What, what you had, the, this was a gold rush cemetery. Lawrence was Turpeka Rush, Gabriel Reed, May, June 1861. It's basically all on. There's thousands of people rushing up there and the odd person's going to die. Um, but it's a gold rush. No one's going to spend too much time planning a communal cemetery. So they pick a bit of land which is away from the gully, doesn't have any gold in it, and they start burying people in a rough line. The records are pretty rough and they certainly haven't survived. Six, seven years later when things have calmed down and a community is built up and a council is formed, they begin to formalise everything a bit more. And they pick a new cemetery spot down the road which is bigger and the council records state that they had considered disinterring all the people from the old cemetery and moving them to the new one and then the records go quiet and what people have done is they've read the record where the council was considering it and that becomes they have been moved and then of course we come along and that's not quite the case mm -hmm. and we had one very shell-shocked landowner and he watched his backyard being transformed into a cemetery but they were very supportive of the work and making sure that we could do what we what we needed to do and then we also found then at Gabriel Street mm -hmm. when we went back the second time there's a slope there the area that's called the Chinese section so this is where it's assumed that all the Chinese people had been buried and possibly also you know we would call paupers and Peter had also noticed that the Hawthorn hedge that is up at the top of the cemetery had actually carried down into that scrub. So he's like, hmm, I think we might just check that out down there. And sure enough, yep, there were rows and rows, rows, and rows, rows of, of burials. What did you do when you found all these unexpected Chinese graves at the Lawrence Cemetery? We did excavate a number mm -hmm. of them, but I mean, that would be months and months of excavation. It's quite messy you know, using the digger and everything, and we need to get everything back as nicely as possible. So the more we dig, the more mess we have to clean up as well. So it's sort of a, a matter for the Chinese community talking with the council about how they would like that managed. Uh, the Chinese community today feel that some of those grave markers are probably not in the right place, and so they were very interested in us finding these lost graves. And what we did find was a fair proportion of those graves that we excavated had been exhumed as part of the exhumation process of the Chinese sending, having their bones oh, sent home. Right. Could you just tell me a bit more about the exhumation in terms of when that would have happened? I mean, this is an area which is of some research at the moment. The Chinese were here as sojourners. They didn't come here to stay here. They came here to earn money and go home to their families with hopefully rich. But of course, many died here but they always wanted to be sent home so what what happened was they would subscribe to a fund and they'd pay a small amount in regularly and that would then if they died in New Zealand that would pay for their return home to be buried in Chinese soil which was what everyone wanted not all the Chinese um, actually subscribed to those funds um, and so some were left here, which is the people we find. There were two exhumation events, one in the 1880s and one in 1902, I think. The, the Chinese community came along, they exhumed the people who had subscribed, put them in, packed them into boxes and sent them home. And the evidence we have found is that they did this very, very carefully. The graves have been excavated, there isn't even a single finger bone. They were meticulous, which is interesting in itself. That says something about the care with which they were doing it at the time. Obviously we know about the 1902 episode in the Ventnor, the, the ship 
sank off the west coast of the North Island. So yeah, that was basically the, the mechanism. They, they, they just wished they were being repatriated to be buried back home in Chinese soil. This isn't really our history to discuss in too much detail. We're, okay. we're yes. going from what the Chinese community <coughs> right. have told us. Yes. In each area there'd be one Chinese merchant or chi leader of the community who would take hold the subscription list and then would organise repatriation. But what we're trying to do with our work is obviously locate the people that were mm. left behind and help the community understand their burial places here and then also tell the story of the people themselves from their, their bones. We have a section called Show and Tell, so I wonder mm -hmm. if both of you wanted to talk a bit about what you find, or just one example, or... With, I guess, one of the things you have to bear in mind in terms of things is that we're, we're working in a, a, a Christian burial tradition, and Christian burials don't tend to be buried with very much. There's no grave goods. It's not like working in Southeast Asia where you have these fantastically rich Bronze Age burials. What we have is, with the European burials, coffin furniture, the way the coffins were decorated, which very much fits into the sort of Victorian beautification of death um, tradition. So there's not much in the coffins, but the coffins outside are quite um, fancy, some of them. And um, we get black cloth wrapping the coffin, and then all sorts of decorations on top of the coffin, embossed metal strips around the outsides. Um, embossed metal sort of plates over the chest with the names sometimes written on them and, and in some cases quite ornate um, coffin handles and it does seem to be sort of associated with wealth and status in other words it costs a lot more to have a, a, a flash coffin but then when we start to consider the Chinese burials it becomes even more interesting so what we've been finding is Chinese burials in coffins which are, very, which are basically identical to the European coffins but in the coffins themselves, we've, we've been finding some artefacts which are very obviously tied to the, the Chinese heritage. In one particular case, a Chinese comb, you can actually still see the Chinese lettering on it, it obviously come from China. So you're, you're, what you're seeing is a really interesting, and we're still working on this, mixture of Chinese and European cultural practices coming together in the goldfields. And the narrative up to now has always been the Chinese were the victims of, of um, horrendous racism and so on. And while that's undoubtedly true, it's not the whole truth. The, whole, the truth is actually far more complex than that. Can you that. expand on, I know it's still in progress, <laughs> but what do you mean by more complex? Well, it wasn't simply them and us, the Europeans living over there, the Chinese living over there, and the Chinese were completely shunned, because um, we know at Lawrence that the, the word for starters, there were the Europeans associating with the Chinese camp. You know, there's stories of the Irish women who were also very low status in the goldfields marrying Chinese men. And so there's all these stories which, are, which come out which we want to sort of critically examine and then um, tease out the actual truth. And there's the clothing mm. as well, isn't there, mm. that the Chinese were, were adopting mm. the European clothing. And that's another thing that we've been finding mm. in these graves mm. in Lawrence is that a lot of the clothing is actually preserved, which is very unusual. So the actual woolen garments are still preserved. And sometimes we might just find buttons, but sometimes mm. we'll find somebody actually completely fully clothed and, mm. and with their hats still on. Mm. But even yeah. there, there's a difference in tradition because they the Chinese are being buried with European clothing, but the way they're being buried isn't European. Like in all the European graves we've excavated so far, no one has their footwear, no one has their boots. But in the Chinese burials, their boots are being placed in, in, a, in at least two or three um, situations. So 
you've mm. got European material culture appearing in a Chinese cultural context. <laughs> Do you see what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah. It, it, you know, the, the stories aren't simple and linear, mm. they're complicated. Are there other ways that you can find out the information mm. apart from just the artefacts? Yeah, what we do from the um, osteological perspective is look at the information from the bones and from the teeth at a very basic level, um, see whether the person was male or female, how old they were. If we were lucky enough to have well-preserved remains, we would be able to look at ancestry, but in most cases we can't. And then we're also looking at the food that people ate, you know, where they actually came from in terms of the geological signatures in their teeth and so forth. Do you have an example of an individual where you can tell me things you have discovered specifically about them? For me, one of the big things I'm interested in is looking at evidence of injury and, and trauma, traumatic injury. So we had a case at Milton, and we were very fortunate because he was one of the few skeletons that was very well preserved. So in order to really tell a lot about the life of the person from the bones, you need to have well-preserved bones and teeth to be able to do that. This guy, we could tell even when he was still in his grave that he had suffered some pretty massive trauma just before he died. So probably actually contributed to his death. The most obvious one was the lower part of his thigh bone had broken and it had actually broken into about three or four pieces. Um, and we can tell by looking at you know, how the bone breaks and the colour of the edges of the bone and stuff as to whether this was actually something that occurred around the time that the person died and when the bone was still green and then when we brought him back to the lab we found that there was evidence of more trauma as well and on the right hand side of his skull he had a massive fracture just right above the ear probably again also from a crushing injury and then one of his ribs also had a similar kind of fracture as well but then there was also other traumatic injuries that had occurred throughout his life. So he had um, a fracture to his elbow and that's a very characteristic type of bone fracture that occurs um, during childhood and while the bone's actually still growing. And he'd also smashed his thumb on the same side because <laughs> that injury to the elbow can actually leave you with um, numbness in your hand. And then he also had a couple of broken ribs as well that had healed. He'd smoked a pipe, he also had really bad teeth, he'd lost a number of his teeth. So all of those things we can, we call it a life course perspective. You know, his story was not probably a very unusual one for that time, but the manner of his death leads us to believe that he was actually someone who is recorded in the historical record as having died in a um, gold mining accident. And he died from um, working in mine shaft and then it just collapsed on him. So that's an example where you can take the historical record and that helps yeah. you identify the actual name of the individual you found. Yeah, I mean we can never be 100% certain but uh, everything sort of points to that. But at Milton we did find a number of individuals who we could positively identify because the names the name. were still surviving on mm. the coffin plate. Mm. That was really interesting mm. actually excavating a person who we knew who they were and actually having that, you know, that person's name and that story in our heads while we were actually working was very different. Very, very interesting, but very poignant.
So for our Digging Deep section, I was wondering if you could both talk about what it's like for you as archaeologists and I guess as humans to excavate um, human remains. Absolutely. Yeah, one woman who we know that she was the wife of the local doctor and she died in childbirth. And then mm. our colleagues that were working with us was actually reading her story out while we were working on the grave. So that's interesting that the fact you knew the person, it made you feel differently. But that's good to know because maybe sometimes you'd think of archaeologists, oh they just do it a grave and it's just a day's work, but it's obviously not. No, absolutely not. We understand the importance of what we're doing. We're carrying along with us the expectations and the feelings of the whole community because the community knows that we're there mm. and we have there are descendants who we've met, who we've talked to. We're certainly in no way blasé about what we're doing. Yeah. I, I spent a lot of time drawing burials in Southeast Asia, so I spent two days staring at one skeleton, <laughs> drawing it, and you have a lot of time to ponder. Mm. And, that, and then you really do begin to wonder, what were they like as a person? Mm. They were there, they were a person, they lived, they breathed, they had a family. It's very different to digging up you know, bits of machinery and ditches and hut sites mm. and so on. I've got a question from a kid which is here. Charlie has asked, how long do you have to study for in order to become an archaeologist? And I thought you were both good people to ask this because you're both doctors of archaeology? You don't need a doctorate, no. In New Zealand these days, a master's degree is very, very useful. There are plenty of working archaeologists who've got BAs. It's good to have a degree because it teaches you a lot about how the questions to think about. A master's degree is, is probably the, the thing to aim for, mm -hmm. which is you know, a three-year BA and then two years MA, so maybe five <laughs> years of study. And how would people get practical experience, or do you just have to wait till you go to university? A lot of archaeology isn't digging. A lot of archaeology is actually reading the landscape. Digging is destruction. When we dig a site, it's, it's dug, it's gone. You can't redig it. The wider landscape, the wider interpretation, anyone of any age can go out on the hills, take photographs, look around and understand a landscape. So you can start doing that as soon as you can ride a bicycle, really. <laughs> Thanks so much Hallie and Peter for doing this interview with me. Hallie and Peter were super kind in rescheduling this interview at the last minute after my flight to Dunedin was delayed. I should also mention that the Southern Cemeteries Project has an amazing website and blog where you can find out way more about their findings. Just Google Southern Cemeteries Archaeology Project. For me, I just love learning about how a project like this is really an exercise in care and respect. It's about identifying and honouring the forgotten people and correcting mistakes in the historical written record. This project is a joint production by Heritage New Zealand, Pohiri Tonga and the New Zealand Archaeological Association. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe to Aotearoa Unearthed or perhaps share this episode online with your friends. And do get in touch with me if you've got any suggestions or questions. Ka kite.